Hi, I'm James Verdier, and welcome to the American Institute of Biological Sciences Bioscience Talks, which is a forum for integrating the life sciences. On the second Wednesday of each month, we discuss the latest bioscience publications. And as a reminder, if you'd like to read more, point your browser to academic.oup.com forward slash bioscience. Today, I'm joined by Dr. Trina Burgess. She's from Murdoch University in Western Australia, and she also holds an adjunct position at the Forestry and Agricultural Biotechnology Institute at the University of Pretoria in South Africa. She's here to talk about eucalypts, which are woody plant species native to Australia, although they are now grown on plantations worldwide. And what makes them particularly interesting is that as they spread, they brought with them a host of co-evolved pathogens, and we can now use that history as a lens to view pathogen spread more generally. Let's get straight to the interview. Uh, Dr. Burgess, thank you for joining me today. No problem. Thank you. Dr. Burgess, uh, I was hoping to get started, you could just give me a little bit of an idea of what eucalypts are um, and what characterizes these species. Okay, so eucalypts, well, that's the genera. There are, I think, something like 800 species now, and they are predominantly found in Australia. There are two or three species found in the islands just north of Australia, but most of them are Australian species. And they are the dominant tree in the landscape in Australia. So they extend from the coolest areas, so they can grow in mountains, there are snow gums, to the driest areas where, you know, you're only getting, you know, um, rainfall occasionally. So they're incredibly well adapted to a dry climate. So they exhibit sclerophylly, so they've got very hard leaves and they, um, uh, yeah, they're just very well adapted to a dry climate. So they um, have a whole range of growth habits, but there are species that can grow particularly fast. And it's these species that have been exploited around the world for plantation forestry. Okay, and these trees are used for things like construction or is it more of a papermaking application? Predominantly papermaking. They can be grown uh, for timber, and that, but this tends to happen more directly out of the natural forest where they've grown more slowly. In general, they're used around the world for um, plantations for, for pulp. So they, in some places like in Brazil and China, they grow these on a five-year rotation. Other places are up to eight to ten years, but usually a eucalyptus um, plantation rotation is about ten years. Roughly how much area uh, exists as plantations of eucalypts? Well, at the moment it's well over 20 million hectares and rising. So there, there's areas with um, a lot. So I think Brazil has something like six million hectares, five to six, and I think China is um, starting to go in a similar way. So there's really big areas around the world. Are these plantations, you know, placed in any particular areas or are they just sort of spread worldwide? Yeah, predominantly in the Southern Hemisphere, except obviously China is not in the Southern Hemisphere. And the other place where there are a lot of plantations are actually in Spain and Portugal. There are different species in different areas. So in the uh, subtropical region, where most of them are grown, there is um, there's the species Eucalyptus grandis and Eucalyptus europhylla predominantly and, and hybrids between them. And in the more temperate areas, it's species like Eucalyptus globulus, which grow really well in those areas. Okay, and your article is focused on pathogens. And yes. I'm wondering, you know, what sort of pathogens affect these species? 
Well, there are all sorts of pathogens on eucalypts, just like any tree in any um, ecosystem, as you can imagine. But the ones that have probably had the biggest impact in plantations, so the ones that are best known, there are um, several leaf diseases caused by species in the Teratosphereaceae and Microsphereaceae. And then there's a few um, canker pathogens that have had a um, quite a big impact, and they're in the Crythonectriaceae. Okay, so you know you're you're speaking in your article about um, you know this natural arms race between eucalypts and their co-evolved pathogens, and you know what I'm kind of wondering is is how does that fall out of whack uh, when you've got you know these plantations that are in different areas? Well, what we think happens is if you take a natural ecosystem, for example, generally it's many aged, so you'll have everything from seedlings germinating to large trees, so you have a very heterogeneous um, landscape and it'll be multi-species. So you have a whole range of interactions and most pathogens only affect or cause disease um, when at some age in the plant's life. So it might be a leaf pathogen of young leaves or it might be a canker pathogen of old trees or something. But when you have a plantation, you plant a monoculture very similar to any agricultural ecosystem. And we think that this provides a huge selection pressure for the build-up of pathogens. So they, um, so the inoculum can build up and so you get lots of inoculum pressure. But also we believe that it gives pathogens sort of a a strong selection pressure to adapt to perhaps a new host. So essentially what's happening is that you're getting stronger pathogens or more able pathogens when you have this sort of growth and, um, and age monoculture. We th- well, that, that is a, actually a really good question. I think we can't answer that 100%. We can't say that they're stronger or better, but what we could say is that their inoculum builds up so that they cause more disease, so you've got a higher inoculum pressure. They may well become stronger and better in, in the case of host jumps where you've got some something moving from one um, species onto another species. That could involve some alteration to their... I don't know, biology, I guess, of the pathogen onto the new host. And that may have some genetic changes, but I can't, I I don't think there's much evidence for them being stronger or better. Okay. And beyond that, you know, are there any sort of general patterns that we see with pathogens in eucalypts? Okay. So um, eucalypts are a really interesting example and probably unique in that uh, they are in really large scale across Australia. So as I said before, every ecosystem in Australia almost has eucalypts in it and are usually dominant. And then they have been planted huge numbers around the world. So you've got these two very big populations of eucalypts. But we also have eucalypt plantation industry in Australia as well, which sort of started about 30 years ago. So we have a whole range of potential interactions between uh, plantations and natural forests. So we have native plantations in Australia and native forest, obviously, and then we have um, exotic plantations overseas in different countries. And then 
interacting with those exotic plantations will be the forests which were in the paper to differentiate between native plantations and, and native forests we've called um, as endemic forest if it's not from Australia and often in those forests there are lots of um, species particularly in the southern hemisphere in the genus or in the family Metaceae and so they're actually quite closely related to eucalypts. So in the Mertaceae, there is a lot of opportunities for host jumps out of um, endemic forests into exotic plantations. So you have a cases in which, uh, you know, you have your the pathogens that are traditionally co-evolved with eucalypts are jumping to um, native forests uh, outside of Australia. Yes. And then you also have the phenomenon in which pathogens that are evolved uh, to grow on, you know, forests outside of Australia are jumping to the eucalypts. Yes, yes. Um, we've got examples of nearly every single um, sort of interaction, yes. And it's obviously there are a lot of permutations that kind of stem from that basic case. Um, I'm wondering, you know, what sort of effect do these pathogens typically have on, let's just take, for example, um, a plantation, you know, is it, does it sort of affect the vigor of the trees uh, slightly or, you know, does it wipe it out? What are, you know, kind of what are we looking at there? Oh, you will have examples of all sorts of um, interactions. So when a new pathogen gets introduced, particularly into exotic plantations, um, they often get wiped out. So because they'll, you know, they're, they're, a lot of the um, exotic um, eucalypt plantation forestry is clonal. And so if a pathogen arrives and that clone has no resistance to that pathogen, the plantation will be wiped out. But most of the forestry companies in that scenario will have many clones available and they will replant or they'll test against the new pathogen and they re they respond to this very quickly. But there are also a whole bunch of pathogens that aren't major diseases. They're just hanging around and then, you know, they don't do so much. And, of course, being a disease, there's also the climate interaction. So you may have years where you have a very big impact and years where the impact's not so big. And we'll get, I'd like to ask you about that effects of climate a little later on. Um, but I'm wondering, you know, so you've touched on this a little bit, but is this a case uh, in which forestry practices are contributing to the problem? Well, yes and no. So, the, I mean, forestry is forestry. It's just a form of, um, you know, long sort of agriculture, really, horticulture almost. So um, it's trees are being planted and then by the effect of them being a monoculture, they attract diseases to them. But then I think the biggest issue in this whole thing is that there seems to have been, and all our studies on population genetics approve it more or less, is that the same genotypes of a pathogen are found in many countries that are very far apart and that the only way they can have been moved around is probably on infected germplasm. So I think there is the case of um, people in the forestry industry moving germplasm around and the diseases with it. So is this a case in which, you know, diseases may be transmitted to uh, native forests outside of Australia um, from the transmittal of this germplasm and it may have large scale effects on um, sort of native ecosystems? Theoretically, 
At this point in time, there are no um, examples of any of the uh, pathogens that have moved off eucalypts into native forest having any major impact. I mean, we have examples, and and to be honest, hardly anyone's looked at this. There's been some work done in Uruguay and a little bit in South Africa where, you know, pathogens that we know are from Australia, from eucalypts in Australia, and that can now be found um, in the natural environment. But at this point in time, they're not doing anything major. It's mainly been species in the Botrysferiaceae, which are sort of like endophytes and, you know, latent pathogens, and they're not having a big impact at this point in time. But is there a threat that they would in the future at some point? Oh, definitely, definitely, yes. How would that work? You know, uh, what, what, what would be potentially one reason why we might see it in the future, but we're not yet seeing it? Time. You know, time for the pathogen to adapt to a new new hosts. So when it's gone the other way around, so probably the most classic example of all is the um, Paxinia sidii, which is the eucalypt rust, which moved out off native mutatacy in South America onto eucalypts, and it probably moved in that direction because, as we've been saying, like the monoculture is a huge selection pressure, so it moved into the eucalypts and it's caused you know, a lot of disease in the eucalypts, which has been solved by, you know, selection and breeding. But um, so there's no reason why it won't go the other way. But I think, once again, there is more resilience in natural ecosystems because of the diversity within them. So it's probably just a matter of time. But if the natural ecosystems are under a lot of stress and pathogens moving into them, then you could expect to see some impact. So I suspect then you have a larger problem in which on a monoculture tree plantation, if you have a particular pathogen, uh, you can manage against it, whereas in a natural ecosystem, you could not. No, no, not at all. So um, I don't know if you were aware, but so Paxinia sidii, it's, it's a rust and there are lots of strains of it. And I think four years ago, a strain of it has entered Australia. And this is Australia, which has very, very good border biosecurity. So, of course, that's um, of great concern anyway, and we still don't really know how it arrived. It has moved rapidly through the natural ecosystems in eastern Australia, all up and down the seaboard. Um, interestingly, it is not the genotype that affects eucalypts, but affects a lot of other um, species in the Myrtaceae, and in some places it's basically wiping them out. Uh, I'm very similar to how Cryphonetria parasitica works in the US. So you'll still get chestnuts, but they're always small and they're constantly being attacked, so they can never grow very big. So this leaf disease is doing pretty much the same in Australia. So the the plants keep on getting infected, so they can't really grow. Okay, so it sounds like just sort of laying out the groundwork, you've got uh, widespread dispersal of these pathogens uh, going through germplasm being spread around the world for the purpose of tree plantation. Uh, you yes. have a you know, a sort of a proven case study, at least, of an introduced pathogen of this general variety uh, being successful in, in Australia. Um, so you have a, a, a proof of concept. You know that this can happen. And yes. it's plausible that over, you know, some period of time, 
one of these pathogens will establish itself in a way that's destructive to native ecosystems. You mentioned earlier yeah. that a stress on an ecosystem might make this type of thing more likely. Uh, what kind of stressors are we talking about there? Well, I would say given the types of pathogens that seem to move, so um, I'll take a one. I'll take a little step back here. So eucalypts have obviously a whole range of pathogens, and there are their leaf pathogens, which seem to be really um, tightly co-evolved with eucalypts, and they 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 tend to be staying on eucalypts at this point of time as they move around the world. There's no example of a eucalypt leaf pathogen from Australia moving onto another crop, but or another tree species, but the 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 pathogens that can affect bark and cause cankers and, and get into the wood, they don't seem to have the same specificity and they are tending to be the ones that we're finding moving off eucalypts in um, other countries. And these are the types of pathogens that tend to express themselves when the trees are stressed. And the most common stress is, of course, drought stress. And so, you know, we've got this whole, um, you know, with the global climate change, we're getting, you know, more longer and more extreme drought events all across the Southern Hemisphere. And I think that would be one of the biggest potential stresses that could see um, these diseases emerging. So climate change is, is certainly an issue here. Mm. And, and could it also be affected by, uh, you know, the presence of, other pathogens or, you know, I'm, I'm thinking now of, of things like um, ecosystems that have been damaged by uh, various beetle species that are, you know, introduced or invasive in, in some forests. Yeah, I mean, well, they all work together. I mean, the, the, when, when we were actually putting this paper together, we did consider also um, looking at the insects, but then it was getting way too long and way too complicated because, of course, there's actually a very similar story uh, with the insects as there is with the um, pathogens. And there have been quite a few insects from Australia that have moved around the world on eucalypts and, and you know, have the potential to move into the move off eucalypts on into natural ecosystems. And then there's also just the fact that when any ecosystem is stressed, a lot of its native pests and pathogens, you know, express themselves. Um, and so, yes, you could end up with a natural environment somewhere that is under stress just from its own um, pests and diseases. And then when you've got another exotic pest or disease coming in, it's going to have a um, big impact, one would imagine, or could have a big impact. And now I'll ask you the question, which is undoubtedly unfair. Um, but what would one do if the goal were to reduce the spread of these pathogens? Uh, you know, are there any steps that could conceivably be taken um, that might be of use in reducing that spread? Well, so obviously nothing can be done about what's already happened. But um, border pre-border quarantine is the only real solution. So it, there, you know, it, 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 in the end, it always comes down to something regulatory. And then, if a government is going to regulate for something, actually following through and having the inspections and trying to stop the movement of, you know, germplasm, because I think, 
you know, it's really evident. So, so we did some, we've done some population genetic studies, particularly on the leaf diseases that are found all around the world. And there is a really clear relationship between how old the eucalypt plantation industry is and how diverse the introduced pathogen is. So the older the industry, the more genotypes of a pathogen that have been introduced through multiple introductions. So obviously it's not just something that's happening once, it's something that keeps on happening. So um, if, you, if the industry itself can often get around diseases by selecting um, resistant genotypes or tolerant genotypes, they still have the issue of introducing new genotypes. And, of course, the more diversity that's introduced, the more chance that a pathogen has of moving into a natural ecosystem. So you've got a problem in which, you know, the, the forestry industry really doesn't have a strong motive, financial motive, um, to reduce this spread on their own. No, no. They need, it needs to be regulated definitely needs to be regulated. I mean, we've always thought that it's, you know, you would think that it was in the industry's interest itself to not allow this to happen, but uh, decisions don't always get made by the biologists within an organisation. They get made by the economists and um, <laughs> and often those decisions seem to be, um, I don't know, uh, mis misdirected, I could guess you could say. I mean, we have an example in Australia, and it's actually a really nice example, and, and we put it in the paper, of where uh, there was a eucalypt plantation industry established in Western Australia. So Western Australia is separated from Eastern Australia by a desert that is something like 3,000 kilometres in length. So nothing moves from Eastern Australia to Western Australia without human assistance it doesn't move naturally and it hasn't for 50 million years so the eucalypt species that was brought to into western australia is uh, eucalyptus globulus which is known as tasmanian bluegum and it, it was ex effectively an exotic species to western australia and when it was first introduced it had no pathogens on it and then there was a couple, but not very major, that moved out of the native forest. But then there was this big growth and expansion in the industry. There was, um, it grew from really quickly from sort of 10,000 hectares to 300,000 hectares. And when this happened, they brought in a lot of nursery material from Eastern Australia in trucks. And even though there were visual inspections, they obviously had a lot of asymptomatic infections and very quickly a whole lot of new diseases were introduced into Western Australia, which they could have kept out. Like they didn't have to let them in. If they had just not, if they'd just been slower and just waited until they could grow all the nursery material in Western Australia, they could have avoided it. But they wanted to grow. And it sounds like, you know, you have then a need for uh, interstate as well as international. Uh, well, we, we do have interstate quarantine, and but it's all done on visual inspections. And so if something, nursery material is always a big problem. And this isn't just for eucalypts. This is globally. This is the whole plants for planting issue, um, is that if something's grown in a nursery, they'll have usually applied um, fungicides and other pesticides 
which don't necessarily um, kill a pathogen, but they will suppress its, um, its symptoms. So you can be moving plants that don't look visually diseased, but the pathogen is there. Yeah. So this is this is this is a problem for all sorts of diseases around the world. That sounds very bad. Is there is there any movement afoot to change that practice? Okay. So this is a practice that is regulated on a country by country basis. So uh, Australia has very tight regulations about the movement of living plants. They can't have any soil attached because obviously there's a whole lot of diseases that can come in soil and they have to be grown. So this, the only living plants that come in are things like bulbs and they are planted in one field which is inspected for any disease expression by the quarantine. The other thing that can, comes into Australia is tissue culture which should be disease free. I think New Zealand has very similar regulations, but I am not sure if there, there are regulations like that anywhere else in the world. I mean, I know in Europe you can order live plants over the internet and have them delivered by mail. So, um, you know, it's, it's, we have been talking about this for years. Every time we go to a biosecurity meeting or any group of foresters or any people that love plants get together, we always talk about stopping the plant for plants for planting trade, but um, yeah, nothing seems to be happening. Okay, and one of the aspects of your article I was hoping we could talk about a little bit is its broad view. Uh, obviously, pathogen outbreaks have been dealt with on isolated local levels, particularly by those who have an economic interest in it. But there hasn't really been this wholesale, holistic approach to understanding the entire problem all at once, has there? Yes, yes. So this, so there was actually a paper in Bioscience, I think it was in 2001, which Mike Wingfield um, wrote where he was talking about the movement of pathogens with the eucalypts industry and he presented a lot of um, hypotheses and then we more or less worked on this for the next um, 15 years so we've had over the past 15 years we've had I think maybe eight PhD students and a and a couple of postdocs and so this is sort of a review or a summary of all their work over all this year so it's we're basically after this point of time now we can take that overview we can look back and say ah this is what we know now and so yes it is the first time it's been put together one thing I wanted to ask, uh, following on to what you were saying about this being a follow-up on the earlier bioscience article, which we will uh, link to in the show notes, um, what's next for your research? You know, I, we so we've you know we have the hypotheses and we have um, then the examination of the of the next fifteen years of results. Uh, where do you go from here? I think the next phase is to look into the native ecosystems in a little bit more detail. Because we do, as I said, we've got a couple of examples where we know that there has been a movement of um, pathogens from the eucalypts into the natural ecosystem. But this hasn't been done in any, um, you know, sort of concerted way. And I think that that is really worth looking at in more detail, especially given that we don't know how they're going to react in the future. So I, I think that 
that that is that will be of interest. I think we're pretty much. I mean, we know a lot about the plantations themselves, and so I think that's where we'll focus next. Great, and we'll certainly look forward to reading and hearing more in the future. Thank you very much for joining me today. Oh, that's okay. Thank you very much, Jones. And that concludes this episode of Bioscience Talks. Just a reminder, the journal Bioscience is published by Oxford University Press on behalf of the American Institute of Biological Sciences and is made possible by the support of our members and donors. Thank you, and talk to you next time.